You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning. As always, thank you for joining us for our online service. As we all know, we're living in strange times and for some of us, life-threatening times. And so first of all, this morning, especially with it being uh, Nurses Day this past week, I want to give a shout out and, and say a big thank you to all the frontline workers and staff at hospitals and healthcare centers, especially to the doctors, nurses, paramedics, hospital staff, and uh, who are part of our church community. Uh, we, we thank you so much. We really appreciate what you're doing, and we want you to know that we're praying for you. And um, again, we really appreciate what you've been doing each and every day as you've taken, this, taken on this burden and even put your lives on the line to serve others and help fight against this virus. On that end, though, this battle against COVID-19, against this invisible enemy, which we're struggling and fighting against in this, at this time, is, is actually a great analogy for what we as Christians are also struggling and battling against spiritually every day. In fact, last week, Pastor Blair reminded us of our need and ability to have endurance as we live our lives in and for Christ in this fallen world. But, but fighting the good fight and finishing the race is easier said than done. Not only because we do live in a fallen world that's, that's filled with its fair share of struggles, temptations, and hardships, but also because, as we'll learn this morning, there's an invisible enemy who desperately wants to trip us up in our walk with Christ, who wants to slow us down or distract us or even cause us to give up. An enemy who wants us to doubt and even turn away from our faith and from our calling as Christians to bring Christ's light into the world. About this enemy, 1 Peter 5 8 writes, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we need to be on our guard. We need to be ready for the enemy. The, the good news, though, is that in the same way doctors and nurses have personal protective equipment like masks, gloves, and hazmat suits in order to protect themselves from contracting the virus, we, as followers of Christ, have also been given personal protective equipment of sorts to, to protect ourselves and to even turn aside the schemes and constant attacks of our true enemy. And this, as we'll learn this morning and more specifically, specifically throughout our new series in Ephesians chapter 6, this is what the Apostle Paul calls putting on the full armor of God. So if you want to turn with me to Ephesians 6, we're going to read 10, verses 10 to 13 again. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, which says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. All right, so most of us have probably heard the expression, ignorance is bliss. 
And in some superficial situations, that statement might ring true. But, but even as we struggle through this season of pandemic, we're learning in a very real way that ignorance can actually be devastating. If we're unaware of danger or, or even choose to ignore it or disbelieve it, we'll not only then be unaware of how to protect ourselves, but we won't even make an attempt. But those who are in the know, those who understand the dangers that we face, will be those who take the proper precautions and remain safe. This is the Apostle Paul's goal in writing this passage. He wants those who follow after Christ to be fully aware of the opposition we face precisely so that we can be prepared for it. Let's back up for just a second here, because before the passage uh, we read together this morning, we need to understand that the Apostle Paul had been writing to the Ephesian church about all the amazing benefits and blessings of living a new life in Christ. For example, our salvation and righteousness, freedom from sin, the indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, a deeply diverse and spiritually unified community, purity and holiness, harmony and love for others, eternal purpose and spiritual gifts, God working in us for his perfect will, a future hope and a glorious inheritance through resurrection life, just to name a few. But then, as the late theologian John Stott writes, but now... Paul brings us down to earth and to realities harsher than dreams. He reminds us of the opposition. Beneath the surface appearances, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. He introduces us to the devil and to certain principalities and powers at his command to warn us of their hostility and to teach us how to overcome them. So this passage is meant to be a sobering reminder and and a warning for us that there's a spiritual battle going on for our souls and in this world. In fact, many commentators have, have noted that the first word of the passage, which we read as finally, would be better translated as henceforward, meaning for the remaining time. Simply put, as we live in this current age, awaiting Jesus' return, we're going to face the attacks of this enemy. So as we live in this age, Paul wants us to be aware of this very real threat, not so that we can dwell on it or to make us afraid, but simply because he doesn't want us to be caught unaware or to be caught unarmed. As John Stott again writes, a thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. Similarly, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We shall go out out of the battle unarmed with no weapons but our own puny strength, and we shall be quickly and ignominiously defeated. So who is this enemy then, we have to ask? Well, we're informed here in the passage that our continuing struggle in this life is not against flesh and blood, but rather against the schemes of the devil, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. So even though it might seem like at times our true enemies are, are, even though it might seem like it at times, our true enemies are not directly human or political or whatever, but ultimately they're demonic. On that end, this passage tells us that the devil and his army are wicked and and powerful, that they're workers of evil, that that they carry authority and, and influence over this world, over this present darkness. 
and that the Satan himself is also a cunning, crafty, and deceitful liar, tempter, and accuser. In other passages, it even says he disguises himself as an angel of light. So definitely not something or or someone to take lightly. And yes, I know that for some of us, all this may sound silly, right? Devils and demons, certainly in our Western culture and all its pomp and intelligence, cannot believe in such fairy tales. About this, theologian N.T. Wright says, I have noticed that the topic of spiritual warfare is itself the subject of spiritual warfare. It is as though certain hidden forces would much rather we didn't talk about it or that we swept it all under the carpet. The general public prefers either to ignore the forces of evil altogether, to pretend they don't exist, and to use cartoon images of the devil with horns and hoofs as arguments to that effect. You can't believe in that nonsense, so you can't believe in a devil at all, can you? Or to take an unhealthy interest in everything demonic, which can be just as bad in the long run. And to add to that statement, one thing we should also remember is that the Bible never shies away from the reality of evil and and spiritual warfare. From the moment the serpent tempted Eve in the garden to talking about fallen angels to demonic possession and Jesus casting out demons, even at one point in the book of Daniel, which we just read through, an angel reveals himself to Daniel and, and says that he would have been there sooner if not for the prince of Persia, this demon over Persia, blocking his way. So the enemy according to scripture, is a very real threat. And I believe our Western culture glosses over this danger to our peril. If we're going to remain strong in our faith and endure in our calling as Christians to bring the gospel and light of Christ into the world, we need to be aware that there are those who are trying to stop us. Again, this passage isn't meant to scare us like a a cheap Hollywood movie about demon possession, but rather it's to remind us of the armor and arsenal that we have at our disposal to defend ourselves. So on that note, over the next couple of months as we go through this series, we'll be discussing the different parts of this armor and how each part protects us from the enemy's various attacks, which we'll also learn about. But for, day, for, but for today, I just, I just want to give a general overview of this armor's availability and necessity. And to that end, we're given two similar exhortations as believers in Christ. Again, Ephesians 6, 10 to 11 says, Finally, Or henceforward, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Again, these verses are emphasizing for us that the reason we need to put on the whole armor of God, not just parts of it, but the whole armor of God, is so that we can stand firm in the face of evil and resist the attacks of the devil. So what is this armor then? And, you know, I think I've said this before in in messages, but I'm a sucker for medieval things. Uh, Knights, Lord of the Rings, Robin Hood, King Arthur, Templars, historical fiction, you name it. I'm I'm a nerd, right? Whether it's books, games, Lego, movies, I'm in. I I love that stuff. I'm a sucker for that stuff. Um, A couple years ago, I built my youngest son a weapon wall so that he could hang all of his toy swords and, and, and shields up in his room. 
But if I'm honest, you know, I was probably just trying to live vicariously through him. Anyways, it comes as no surprise then that as a kid, I was, I was fascinated by this passage about putting on your armor. It was always a big hit for me when it came up in Sunday school. But in that regard, I think we have to make an attempt to move past the idea that this is simply a kid's story or, or a fun allegory and come to a humble recognition that this armor, not unlike the, the enemy it's meant to protect us from, is both very real and very necessary. But yet we can also rejoice in the fact that it's very available. What I mean is this isn't an armor which we have to manufacture ourselves or earn on our own. We don't have to collect each piece like a quest in a video game. It's the armor of God and it's freely available for us to put on. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a time when the Philistine army was set up to attack Israel's army armies, which were being led at the time by King Saul. And every morning for 40 days, a Philistine giant named Goliath would taunt the Israelite army, saying that if any soldier from the ranks could defeat him, then their whole army would acquiesce defeat, and vice versa. Of course, no one would dare fight this Goliath because they were all afraid of of this mighty enemy. But then along came a young boy named David, and he had some food for his three brothers who were Israelite soldiers. And after hearing about the issue, David wondered aloud, why are we letting this man defy the armies of the living God? Then David's words were brought to the attention of King Saul, and David was summoned before him. And eventually David, in his example of great faith in God, managed to convince King Saul to let him go out and fight Goliath. But before sending David out, Saul tries to dress David in his own personal armor, as it says in 1 Samuel 17, 38-39. It says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. And then we know the story, right? David grabbed his sling along with five smooth stones. And then as he faced the giant, he declared to him, 1 Samuel 17, 47, he declared to him, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. Of course, we all know the end of the story. David defeats Goliath. But what I always found intriguing about this event is is how King Saul tries to get David to wear his own personal armor, thinking that this is what will help him or, or protect him the most from the giant. And this is often what we do ourselves. We hear about an enemy, and and, and so we try to face this enemy in our own strength or with our own methods. But David seems to know otherwise. He removes Saul's armor, not only because it doesn't fit, but also because he understands that the, the, the battle isn't merely physical, but spiritual. He understands his true enemy, and he understands that he needs a different kind of armor, not one that's manufactured by human hands, but of God. And so even though he takes off King Saul's armor, he's not without protection. 
He actually gains victory over the giant only because he faces him in the might and strength of the Lord. He approaches the enemy not armorless as Goliath may have assumed, but rather donning the full armor of God. Ultimately, David understood in faith that it's God, not himself, not our own man-made armor, whether that's our self-confidence or positive vibes or self-righteousness or pride or anything we try to conjure up, but rather it's God alone who brings the victory over the enemy and keeps us from harm. And so this is a good reminder for us that, that to put on the armor of God is really to stand in the might of his promises, his grace, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his strength. Pastor Tope Kolioso, a Nigerian pastor from the UK, states, You cannot theologize Satan away. You cannot lecture him away. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to address those situations. This is a supernatural calling. The whole thing is supernatural. You came into the kingdom supernaturally. You're going to be sustained in the kingdom supernaturally. And this is so important for us to grasp. Our salvation in Christ was supernatural. Our true enemy is supernatural. Therefore, we need to be sustained supernaturally. Because to be honest, like David facing Goliath, the spiritual enemy we we struggle against is powerful and, yes, too strong for us to resist on our own. We can't win the battle in our own strength. But as David proclaimed, the battle belongs to the Lord. So in order to stand firm as citizens of the kingdom of God in this world, we we need to have the humility And the honesty in our weakness to say, Lord, help us. And then allow his Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our weakness and arm us in his might so we can stand firm. As Ian Duguid writes, the powerful combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil is inevitably overwhelming. Left to ourselves, this is why in Ephesians 6, Paul doesn't merely say, bring the armor of God along with you on the off chance that you might need it. Rather, he says, you will need it, so put it on. We need the armor of God to protect us and help us to stand firm. In fact, as we'll learn throughout this series, most of the pieces of the armor of God we're called to put on are actually defensive in nature. This is ultimately because the battle against Satan, against evil, against the the powers and authorities of this present darkness, against our true Goliath of sin and evil, have actually already been defeated for us at the cross. Colossians 3, 13 to 15 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus not only paid the debt for our sin and brought us into new life through his death and resurrection, but he also won the victory over the satanic rulers and authorities over the forces of darkness. It says he disarmed them, made them impotent at the power of his name. Even during his earthly ministry, Jesus showed us glimpses of this authority 
when he cast demons out of those who were possessed. So the good news here for us is that this means that the struggle against this enemy is actually fought from a place of victory. Jesus has already taken the ground for us and for the kingdom of God. As it says in Ephesians 2, 1-7, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we used to be under the influence of evil and sin, walking in darkness. But through the cross, by his grace, Jesus has rescued us and given us new life. He's already won the victory over evil for us. And we're now children of the day. We no longer belong to the night. Which also means that Satan actually has no power over those who are in Christ. Of course, he wants to gain that ground back, right? He's looking to influence us. He's looking to trip us up in our faith, to distract us or tempt us away. And he's looking for a foothold to do it. But according to this passage, as long as we're wearing this this armor of God, he simply can't. Again, against the power and authority of Christ, he's been rendered impotent. And now, Jesus is freely handing over this same armor which he wore in triumph. And he's handing that armor to all those who believe in him. In other words, we receive this full armor of God by grace as we place our faith in Christ. In fact, it's unlikely that Paul saw a Roman centurion walk by while he was writing this passage and think, oh, awesome, that that dude's armor would make a great analogy and example for the conclusion of my letter. I mean, it's certainly very possible that, that a scenario like this may have inspired him in some sense, since he was probably either chained to a Roman guard at times and definitely watched closely by them in the Roman prison he was currently in when he wrote this letter. But in actuality, Paul's drawing from the imagery mentioned in Isaiah's prophecies of a Messiah who would come in God's armor to save his people. Prophecies which declared that this Messiah, who we know as Jesus, would would put on the breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation on his head, that he'd wear a sash of faithfulness and, and a belt of righteousness, and that his mouth would be like a sharp sword, and that he'd come on his feet bearing good news, peace, joy, and salvation to the glory of God. This is the armor of God which Christ Jesus wore to redeem us from sin and death and to usher us into God's presence and grace. And he's handing the same armor over to us so we can wear it as well. In a nutshell then, to put on the armor of God is to put on Christ, is to stand in his authority and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh, 
to gratify its desires. Galatians 3.27 says it like this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And also in his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul encourages him in this way. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, he says, Timothy, my child, you must let Christ Jesus make you strong by his gift of undeserved grace. To wear the armor of God is to put on Christ and his righteousness. It's to be filled and strengthened by his spirit. It's to let God in in our weakness strengthen us in the fullness of his power and his love and his authority so that we can so that he can work out his perfect and good will in us ultimately to put on the armor of god is to take hold of and stand firm in the victory over sin and evil which jesus christ has already won for us through his death and resurrection and in the armor of god then we're untouchable against the assaults of the enemy. In the armor of God, we stand victorious. And it's to this end that the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. And so as we close today, it's a prayer that I'd like to pray for each of you watching this morning as well. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Ephesians three sixteen to 21. This is our prayer, Lord. I pray that the Father may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.